we're not just separated out of, we're actually separated unto God. There's a purpose, there's a reason behind it. We're saved from something for something to actually live out what God intended humanity to live out here and now. Good evening. I'm, I'm actually surprised. I, I too, like Jonathan, thought that we'd be a little bit of a smaller group this evening, but I'm extremely happy and excited to see such a full attendance this evening. Um, welcome. Citywides are always an excitement for me. I don't know if you guys get charged by them. I mean, the Lord's Day in general, gathering, agape, being with the body, exhilarating, but it's always great to be able to be together with together with uh, other saints throughout the city here. So <clears throat> I have the opportunity this evening to share with you all, and I want to continue our discussion from last time. We, we started in on the story of the, uh, with Nicodemus, where Jesus and Nicodemus are having a conversation. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and begins to ask him some questions, and all of his categories begin to I'm sure not just expand, but probably explode a little bit hearing what Jesus is, is saying to him when he talks about be, the need to be born again, and it just doesn't seem to fit within any thought patterns that Nicodemus has. So tonight I want to continue in that story. I've titled this message, Entrusting the Giver, the Gift, and the Giving for Deep Lasting Life. Now, I don't know about you, but I know I, would, I want deep, lasting life. And I would hope that if I, we went around and did a survey and asked for a show of hands, I would hope that we would all raise our hand and say, yeah, I'd love to have deep, lasting life. And that's something that Jesus begins to unpack here with Nicodemus in his conversation. So to recap, this comes from John chapter 3. And the beginning of this conversation, uh, as, as I mentioned, comes with Nicodemus approaching Jesus by night and stating that he knows that Jesus is a teacher who has come from God. No one can do the things that you do unless God be with him. And Jesus begins to tell him that you must be born again. If you want to see the kingdom you must be born again. And if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be born of the water and spirit. And we established last time um, this born again, what bringing substance to what this means is connected to baptism, what it means to die to yourself and enter into this new life that Jesus offers to those who want to put to death the old man, be buried with him, having the old flesh crucified, rising again in newness of life that Jesus brings. Now, obviously, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ had not yet happened, and so Nicodemus is having to, to grapple with what Jesus actually means. And he even repeats back to him, I have to enter into my mother's womb a second time, and he, he seems to be puzzled by what Jesus is putting forth, and Jesus continues to bring more clarity to what he's speaking about. And even Jesus himself says, are you the, 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 the teacher of all Israel, and yet you do not know these things? And that's where we're going to pick up this evening. So this is going to start in verse 
I'll start in verse 10, backing up just a little bit. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who has come down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and the world uh, and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have uh, been done in God. And after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. So there's this very interesting, yet to some degree puzzling, point of history in, in Israel's history that Jesus points out about this very obscure story that comes from the book of Numbers, where the people are grumbling and complaining, and they're being bitten by serpents, and they're dying, and, and they, they, because of their rebellion to Moses and to Yahweh, and they, they begin to repent for what they've done, and they're, they're asking Moses to please beg God to spare them, and God tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent and to mount it on a pole and to raise it up. And, and all they need to do is just look up to this serpent that's being raised up on the pole, this bronze serpent, and they would be spared. It's a very, very interesting story, and, and, and Jesus doesn't really elaborate. He just kind of mentions it and keeps going. I'm, my assumption is that he knows that Nicodemus would be familiar with this story. If he is the teacher of all Israel, for sure he would have to know this event that took place in Israel's history. But Jesus is saying, in the same way, so the Son of Man also must be lifted up, he says there, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but would have eternal life. <clears throat> I think there's an interesting point that is being drawn out here as we're thinking about the context of Jesus and Nicodemus having this dialogue. In other words, what Nicodemus thinks salvation is, what Nicodemus thinks it means to worship Yahweh and to, to be a teacher of Israel and to be a faithful covenant, a keeper of the covenant, is very different than what Jesus is putting forth here. Once again, I think Jesus is 
broadening these, these categories, these very narrow categories that Nicodemus and the other Pharisees are looking at the law and understanding where salvation is to come from. Jesus is expanding those things to areas that they don't even understand and that there's this simplicity of recognizing that when you've hit the bottom and there's nothing else you can do except simply entrust yourself for your, well, for, for your own well-being and, and salvation, that's the point you need to start. And that's the point where meet what, when we start to talk about what it means to be born from above and born again starts at this very infant place of simply trusting. Thankfully, I've never been bit by a snake. I don't know if anyone else has been bit by a snake. If you have been, I'm assuming it wasn't poisonous. Hopefully not. But I could imagine being in the desert and everyone, you see people left and right dying, being bitten by these serpents. And, and Moses comes and says, here's the solution. You're going to just look up to this pole, this serpent that's on a pole, and the curse is reversed. Like, shouldn't there be more to it? Like, it seem, that seems too simplistic. That seems like there, there's not enough there. I mean, we, we need some sort of a remedy, like maybe I need to do something. But, but that's where the beginning of faith starts, is when we recognize there's nothing we can do. We simply have to trust or entrust ourselves. I want to look over at a story in 2 Kings. <clears throat> You're, you can feel free to turn over there. 2 Kings chapter 5. It's a story that I'm sure many of us are familiar with. And it's the story of Naaman. Starting in verse 5, it says, Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a, vil uh, excuse me, he was a villain soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Am uh, Aram had come out, of, out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go. The king of Aram replied, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? So how, uh, so how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? <clears throat> when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him the message why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, 
and you will be cleansed. Now notice Naaman's response. I can, I can relate with Naaman here, I think. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of, of the, Lord, the Lord his God, wave his hands over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are you not uh, Abana and uh, Fapar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I have not washed in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in rage. I mean, just imagine, like he, you know, it, that's too simplistic. There, there, it can't be that simple. It can't just be where I simply, he says a word and then I simply just trust and do it. There, there needs to be something more. There needs to be more substance to it, right? Verse 13 says, Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, and as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Sometimes it's not about what we can do and and I'm sure we've all been in that same place where if, if I was called, if I could do something great, I would do it. But this just seems too simple. Just like those Israelites in the desert, all they have to do is simply muster up the strength to look up and recognize what they've done and look up and they can be healed. And that's the place that Jesus is telling Nicodemus he needs to begin to truly come to life. And maybe this is what Jesus is even saying to Nicodemus here, is that there's a need for you to truly entrust yourself to the Son of God, to entrust yourself to me. Because Nicodemus knows the great story of Israel and its history. Nicodemus knows all the great teachings and, and all the things that are contained within the law and what they can produce and Jesus is saying, we're starting fresh. Nicodemus is probably think, thinking, well, wait, but what about, you know, because we have the Mosaic law, we have circumcision, we have clean and unclean, uh, we have Sabbath, and we have all of these things. What about these things? And Jesus is simply saying, trust. The point where you start is trust in me. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man also must be lifted up. And whoever entrusts in him will not be destroyed, but rather that person will have deep, lasting life. And I'm going to talk about a little bit later on this concept of destroyed. Many times when we read this very infamous verse, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. A lot of times we, we read that and we think about the life to come. We think about Jesus here is talking about heaven. But this concept of, of perishing that Jesus is getting at and this concept of life is something that's accessible right now. It's a life that's not meant to be wasted. Perishing 
is happening now for people and access to life that can be deep and lasting and meaningful is accessible right here, right now for you, for me, and for everyone. And sometimes even those of us who have entrusted ourselves to the Messiah, we've, we've entrusted ourselves, we've gone and washed away our sins, we've entered into the kingdom and become a part of the body, we still sometimes have to be remembered of the simplicity of belief and faith and trust. Think about Peter. Peter and the other disciples are out on a boat. Jesus is not with them. It's dark, and all of a sudden, in the distance, they see this figure. They see, it appears as if someone is walking towards them, and they're in, the, in a boat in the middle of the water, and there's, there's no logical reason this should be happening, but it seems as if someone's coming, and they begin to fear, and Jesus says, do not fear, it is I. And Jesus said, Lord, if it is you, command me that I may come. And Jesus says, come. And Peter has faith, right? He simply trusts. He, he takes that, that step of faith and he, he steps out of the boat. He, he begins to walk on the water. And for whatever reason, whether it's the circumstances of the water around him moving and the wind, or whether in his own mind he's thinking there's no logical, rational reason this should be working right now, whatever it is, he takes his focus off of Jesus. And what happens? He begins to sink. But he, he recognizes the only thing that he can do in that moment because once again, there's, there's nothing he can do, right? There's nothing. He's literally sinking into the water and the only thing that he can do is muster enough strength to say, Lord, save me, and stretch out his hand. And what does Jesus do? Immediately reaches down and pulls him up. Sometimes we need that reminder as believers. That though it's the place to start, it's the place we always need to come back to and recognize that we simply need to trust. Trust God, trust his faithfulness, trust in Jesus. So that brings us to verse 16 there, the very famous verse. I'm sure all of us in here to some degree have it memorized and have seen it plastered on billboards and signs and and I think probably even a good number of non-Christians know this verse. It's a very popular verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I want us tonight to, to think about this verse maybe in a different framework than you've thought about it before. I came across something, and I don't know who or where to contribute um, its authenticity to or who developed it. But I think it's a very helpful framework to think about really unpacking what this verse truly means and giving it the substance that it deserves in context of this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Because it's very important that we remember, this, think about Jesus saying these things, probably sitting down, face-to-face -face with Nicodemus. Maybe they were standing, but I, I, the picture in my mind is they're sitting down, there's maybe a small table, it's, it's, it's at night, so it's probably dim, but they're, they're having a face-to-face -face conversation. And he begins with God. Well, what is God? God is 
the greatest subject ever. It's the greatest subject ever that we could spend our, a lifetime studying and, and, and learn, seeking to understand and to know. And he's best and most revealed through Jesus. Jesus says that he came to show us the Father. He is the express image of the Father. But there's a, a certain way to think about how God is presented and what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that God is the giver. And if we start on page one of the Bible, we, we can see this very clearly. God, who is a benevolent creator, right? God who brings everything into existence, and then he puts his own image called human, Adam. He puts him in the garden, and he gives him a purpose. He gives him a belonging. He gives him work. He gives him a home. He gives him everything. And his hope and design and desire there is, is that humanity would, would participate with God in this great story that he's creating. So God is a benevolent creator who desires participation. And now being expressed in what we call the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And a way to think about this is God the Father as the giver, the Son, as we know, is the gift, and the Holy Spirit is the giving one, the one that we have continual access to now that Christ has gone to be with the Father. So God, the greatest subject ever, so as in much, to the greatest extent, so God so loved, so that word so, while it's, it's so minimal, but it, it expresses so much to the greatest extent you could ever imagine, loved, which is the greatest affection ever. This word, it's, it's, in, the, it's in the verb form of agape. It's, it's related to the word that we have that we use, agape, in the verb form here. And, and it's the greatest affection ever that's been being demonstrated through the life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and Christ. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, says... Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this love, excuse me, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has, has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, who, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. <clears throat> so we can see that John really is holding this affection in high, high regard. Not just in thinking about God's love for us, but how that is, how that, what that is meant to produce in us to each other. It doesn't just affect us this way. It affects us this way. And when we, when we truly grasp that, that that's, it should just be something that we're naturally pouring out and overflowing from us. The challenging part is the flesh sometimes gets in the way, but we have that continual call to daily crucify the flesh and to walk in the love of Christ and manifest that love to our brothers and our sisters and ultimately to the world around us. So love, the greatest affection ever. God so loved the world, the greatest object. And while we can say, for God so loved me, that's not what Jesus says here. This word is, is cosmos. This is talking about the, in, the entirety, entirety of God's creation. And you and I are a major part of that. You and I are a distinct part of that creation. But God has a much, much bigger picture in mind, a much more holistic one, a grand design in which we, once again, in, in a renewed creation in Jesus, get to participate in that calling that God has for us. Romans 8 I'll, I'll turn over there. Um, Romans chapter 8 and verse 19. Paul digs in a little bit into thinking about the creation itself here. And in verse 19 says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject to, subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Wow, that's a much bigger picture. And you and I are a huge part of that. But it's about restoring and redeeming the whole of creation. 
For we know that the whole creation here, 22, we know that the whole creation groans and labors. Can you imagine that? It says with birth pangs to gather until now, together until now. So the whole creation, not just you, not just I, not just humans, the whole creation is actually groaning and crying in birth pains, waiting for that redemption. Because it wasn't just humanity that was subjected to the curse. The ground was cursed. Relationships were broken. There was a, a, so much that was lost in that first story of rebellion. Not only that, verse 23, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption of the redemption of our body. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son the greatest gift ever. God gave his only begotten son, and that is the greatest gift ever. I want to read a, a quote here. <clears throat> this is from a commentator named Bruner as he reflects on this verb that is uh, mentioned here in this passage for, for gave. The verb gave is an aorist particular once for all past tense signifying not just a mood, but a definite historical act indeed. The verb makes, that, makes the love of God a historical event. We identify with it. The career of Jesus of Nazareth, especially his great weakened gift of himself unto death and the Father's gift of raising him from the dead. God the Father did not just emotionally love the world, but do nothing about it. No, he gave. And he gave so deeply and so personally that he sent to us his only son. We humans cannot fathom the extent of this absolutely unique divine giving, but we do believe it happened in history. And that is the world's most profound event and reality ever. When one stops to think of it as a real event, one can only bow one's head and wonder. To truly just contemplate and fathom to what lengths the Father went to redeem us. Like, God didn't do any wrong. Like, we are the ones who have, have wronged him over and over, rebelled and broken the covenant throughout history again and again and again and again. But yet, God, while we were yet sinners, sent his Son so that we can receive that adoption, so that we can be redeemed, purchased with his own blood. We are a purchased people. And not purchased with the blood of bulls and goats, but purchased with the blood of his only son. And that is the greatest gift that has ever been given. And the next part of our verse goes into the, the whoever or whosoever. And this is the greatest opportunity ever. I wonder what Nicodemus was thinking at this moment when he said that 
whoever believes. Well, wait a second, Jesus. You mean whoever as in the Jews, right? Maybe that was going through his mind because a lot of, a lot of people in, in Jesus' days had that very narrow view, right? Well, wait, this is, this is only for a, a certain type of people, people who have come from Abraham within this line, the covenant people of God, right? We're not talking about Gentiles. No, whoever. It's much broader than Nicodemus could have ever imagined. And Jesus is opening that door and saying, whoever. That means you, that means me, that means everyone. And it's the greatest opportunity ever. Now the challenging part, I know for me, is sometimes I can lose sight of that whoever. Sometimes I can forget that Jesus, Jesus said that he's the door. And he didn't say, you're the doorkeeper. He didn't put me in front of that door and say, I'm the door and you guys be the doorkeeper. Jesus said, whoever. And many times I, I can find myself standing in that place and saying, well, I'll say no for them because I know it's just going to get, it's going to be too much once we get down the road with some of the hard things that Jesus teaches. So maybe I won't invest the time here because I just know it's going to get too hard and it's going to be too much for them. That's not up for us to, to, to determine. That's not up for me to, to, to determine. It's our job just to be faithful and point people to the door and say, Jesus is the door. And he said, that's the way. And I'm, I'm going that direction and I love, I want you to come with me. And it's not going to be easy. I know it's going to be hard. That with many tribulations, we're going to enter the kingdom of God and I want you alongside of me in that journey. But sometimes I become that doorkeeper, right? I think if we're honest, sometimes we're like, you know, I don't know. It, it's going to be hard for them and I, maybe I'll, we'll just... We'll see if they're interested at some other point, but maybe not right now. And that's the challenge. And it's, it's convicting for me to remember, no, Jesus says, whoever, not just the Jews, but everyone to the ends of the earth, whoever believes in him. So we have the greatest opportunity ever for everyone, whoever believes in him. And this is the greatest commitment ever, the greatest commitment ever. This is the most used word, this believe, that in the, in the Greek, this is the most used word in this discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. He says it eight times. So it seems like this is very significant that, that Jesus keeps bringing him back to this place where it just begins with simply trusting yourself to God or entrusting. I like thinking about this believe as entrusting oneself, that it's not just some some sort of mental agreement or mental recognition, but there's this, this recognition that there's nothing you can do. Just like when you're bit with a snake and you're sitting there dying and the only thing you can do is just barely muster the, the, what little strength you might have left to look up and be healed from it. Or that strength to be like, really? I have to, all I have to do is just go in here and dip seven times and all of a sudden I'll be made well. There should be more involved into it than that, right? No, simply entrust yourself to God. And whoever believes in Jesus and entrusts in Jesus in that relationship <clears throat> will find the life that Jesus is offering. 
Now I know that it can be a little bit tricky in trying to understand this as we think about conversion and, and baptism and how do those relationally work together. Once again, this is the greatest commitment together. And one way to think about this point of conversion when somebody begins to simply entrust themselves to Jesus is to think about that at, or liken that to engagement. Right? So when, when two individuals, a man and a woman, choose to, to transition their relationship into an engagement, engaged to be married, something definitely changes about that relationship. However, they're not yet able to fully embrace everything that that relationship will end in when it, when it gets to the point on that day of marriage, right? So they, can, they enter into this, this great commitment within the engagement, but however, they can't live out the realities of that commitment until the day in which the marriage comes, which would be likened to baptism. That this conversion and this point of entrusting is this thought of entering into this commitment and baptism is the reality of <clears throat> that commitment coming into reality such as marriage is. Now, not taking it to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the difference in there is we're talking about the individual to Jesus and the marriage supper of the Lamb is analogous of, of the church collective to Christ, we being his, his bride, but thinking about the individual and, and our relationship to Christ there. Now, once again, <clears throat> something that I think we have to, to even ourselves rem be reminded of, just like Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples and still recognized, not only had he been with Jesus, but he still comes to this point where he takes his eyes off Jesus. Jesus says, you have little faith, and he begins to seek. We have another example in Mark 9 where <clears throat> Jesus asks, do you believe? And someone says, yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. And sometimes we find ourselves at that place. Jesus, we, we do. I believe. But it's hard right now. And sometimes we just have to say, I believe. Help my unbelief. Once again, bringing it back to Christ and remembering that he has what we need for every season of life. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, the greatest opportunity, believes in him, the greatest commitment ever, should not perish. And this is the greatest rescue ever. And this perish is in the present tense, not just thinking about should not go to hell one day. No, it's about not being wasted here and now. When Mary is visited by the angel, and the angel says to her, you will bring forth the son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not in their sins, not to their sins. He will save them from their sins. He saves us from something for something. We're saved from this wasted destruction, this perish, the bondage, the sin, and we're saved unto life. And sometimes, you know, we talk about, about being separated, separated people, and that's, those are great conversations, but sometimes we neglect the piece of separation is that we're not just separated out of, we're actually separated unto God. There's a purpose, there's a reason behind it. We're saved from something 
for something, to actually live out what God intended humanity to live out here and now so that we can manifest God's kingdom to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our schools, to wherever we happen to find ourselves. Think of yourself as a seed of the kingdom in whatever neighborhood and place you're, you're planted. You are a seed that's been planted and around you should be an expression of God's kingdom that is, being, that is growing and flourishing and we're supposed to be helping one another as living stones, as Peter says, being built up one upon another, a dwelling place of the Lord. <clears throat> We don't want to waste that. We don't want to short-sight that and just say, well, it's about making sure that one day when I die, I have some sort of assurance of where I'm going. There's a time and a place for that kind of a conversation and those kinds of thoughts. But, but Jesus is sitting in front of Nicodemus and saying, I have something to offer and do you want it? Because it's available right now. And Jesus says that to you and to me. And he gets to, goes from the greatest rescue ever to everlasting life, which is the greatest promise ever. And the way that I like to think about everlasting life is deep lasting life. We have the giver who is given the gift, his son, and the promise here is deep lasting life. Not just this place that you hope to go one day when we die, but actually accessing life now. John 10 talks about that the thief comes. And what does the thief come to do? He comes to, to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Well, is that happening here? Do we see killing and stealing and destroying? Absolutely, we see that in the world, right? But Jesus says, but I have come that they may have life. I have come that they may have life, and not just life, but that they may have it more abundantly. That doesn't sound too small to me, right? I mean, that, there's like, it's like Jesus has this, the access to this deep, lasting life, and he wants anyone and everyone who wants it to come to him and simply trust and say, here you go. I want you to have this. And this is the picture that we get of God in, in the very beginning story. God is a benevolent creator who wants to bless his creation and, and wants to have participation in the work that he's doing in and through the world, through us. And this, I think, becomes apparent in our passage here. We'll turn back over to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 verses 18 and 19, I think, begin to help us understand what we just read here in verse 16 when he says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. The life is already wasted. It's not about the life being wasted in the end. It'll be wasted in the end. There is, there is a time and a place to have those thoughts and those conversations, but life or death is available here and now. <clears throat> because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, <clears throat> and, man, excuse me, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. 
but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. I want to read a, a quote here, also from Bruner. He says, We have moved in this chapter with Nicodemus from anthropology, human beings, through pneumatology, which is the spirit, and Christology, which is Christ, into now theology, to God, the Father himself. The entire plan of salvation is laid out for us in the present chapter, from the human problem to the divine solution, or working from the back of the text forward, from God as the giver through the Son who is the gift to the Spirit, which is, which is the giving one, and all being given to every single problem of humanity. Simply responding with trust to this divine call is what God requests. Turn over to John chapter 12. I want to highlight the words of Jesus here that are very profound. John chapter 12, verse 44. <clears throat> Jesus says, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. This contrast of light and dark is a, a very common theme throughout John's gospel here. Verse 47, And if anyone hears my word and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life or deep lasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So Jesus here makes it very clear that in his first coming, he's not coming to judge, right? I have come as a light into the world. I didn't come to, to judge and to condemn, but what does he say? The very words that he spoke will judge you in the last day. So his words come, and here they are, accessible, the greatest opportunity to come and access that life now. And those same words, it's like a double-sided coin, right? Those same words are what we're going to be held to in the last day. And the words that we know of Christ, as he says here, the commandment is this deep, lasting life. Here is life in abundance. Do you want it? It's the greatest promise, the greatest rescue, the greatest commitment, the greatest opportunity, the greatest gift ever, the greatest object, the greatest affection to the greatest extent. 
to the greatest subject ever, God himself. And God gives the command that you and I can have this deep, lasting life. There it is. It's waiting. And Jesus is inviting us. It's not here to judge us, but it will judge us in the last day. So rejection, rejection itself is judgment. The very words that he has spoken is what we will be judged by in the last day. So in this discourse, as we've read with, with Nicodemus, Jesus presents the reality of God's good news, his design and his desire for us to have this deep, lasting life that is in Christ, here and now, here and now. I'm hoping you're getting that point. That's, it, this is accessible to us through the resurrection. This has been made available to us right here, right now. And that through entrusting ourselves to Christ in his life and his death and resurrection, Jesus then reveals the necessity to be born from above as he started in the earlier conversation with Nicodemus through water baptism to see and to enter into God's kingdom. God the Father is the ultimate giver of all and has lavished us with the precious gift of life, the gift of his only Son, his only Son Jesus, and through his ascension, our King has bestowed on us the giving spirit that leads and empowers and keeps us until the day that he returns again. I want to close with a, a, clo a quote excuse me, a quote from Chris Ostom about this particular passage, specifically his reflection on John 3, verse 16. He says, The text, God so loved the world, shows intensity of love, for great indeed and infinite is the distance between the two. He who is without end or beginning of existence, infinite greatness, loved those who are of the earth and ashes. Creature laden with sins innumerable and the act which springs from love is equally an indicative of, the, of its vastness. For God gave not a servant or an angel or an archangel, but his son. Again, if he had many sons and given one, this would have been very, very great. But he has now given us a gift, his only begotten son. And the challenge that I have for us, <clears throat> and this was a challenge I gave to Brackenberry a few weeks ago, and the challenge that I have for us is to take five minutes, this, this coming week, I want you to take five minutes of your, your devotion time or whatever, whenever, whether that's morning, afternoon, in the evening, take five minutes and meditate on God's love and how he has manifested that love towards you throughout your life. So take five minutes, contemplate, meditate, time of silence on God's love and how he's demonstrated that love towards you and how you can manifest that love towards others. And the challenge in that is not only to do that, but within your own agapes next week, share what, what came out of that time of reflection. What things did, did, came to your mind? What things do you need to, to do to show and demonstrate the, the tremendous amount of love that's been demonstrated towards you and towards all of us through the gift of Jesus 
<clears throat> and how are we manifesting that to the world around us. So hopefully that will give you opportunity to talk about these things in your own agape um, circles next Sunday. I want to read the lyrics of a song by Charles Wesley. It's a hymn that I'm sure most of us are familiar with, but it's Wesley reflecting on his own life and the life that has been given to him in the gift of Christ. It's called Amazing Love. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his Father's throne above, and <clears throat> so free and so infinite. His grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeons flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation, now I I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Behold, I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how could it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the gift of Christ. I thank you, Father, that you are the giver of all and that you have given your Son for us that we can be redeemed and reclaimed and renewed and brought into right relationship, Father, and that you have chosen to reveal yourself in your Son, Jesus, to reclaim humanity. The enemy has come to still to kill and to destroy, but Jesus has come that we may have life and have it more abundantly. And Father, I thank you that we have access to this deep, lasting life. And sometimes the situations of our, of our day, of our, of our times that we live in, the situations that we find ourselves in, um, in, in many walks of life, it's like Peter when he steps out of the boat and, and the circumstances of life just become too much and, and fear grips us and we, we can sometimes lose sight, but we need to recognize that all we, need, all we can do sometimes is just look to Christ and, and reach out our hand and ask, Lord, save me. And I pray, Father, that we can walk in the blessed assurance that you have for us in Christ, that we can live in that, call, that upward calling that we have in Christ and that we can reveal and demonstrate your kingdom to the world around us. We ask for your kingdom to come, your will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen.